Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. This morning I'm delighted to be talking to Bruce Daisley, the Vice President for Twitter uh, for Europe, uh, Africa and the Middle East. And uh, we're going to talk to him about uh, his happiness at work, his career. Um, and uh, you're very, very welcome. You, you already uh, are a legend in terms of what you've done in the media industry, as people will discover as we talk through. But also now a best-selling author, and we'll talk about your business book as well. Uh, but Bruce, you went to York University. Yeah. Uh, you're a boy from Birmingham, and you read economic history. Yeah. So... Why did you pick uh, York and economic history? Grew up in a council estate in Birmingham, and the, the big thing for me growing up was that I actually went to Birmingham has free grammar schools. And the first experience I had then, I thought everyone grew up in a council estate. And in fact, at that time, about 40% of people grew up in council housing. Um, and then when I went to the selective grammar school, I realised that we were like the bottom of the the pile rather than the middle of the pile and so I was quite politically interested and engaged in how politics can solve those things and economics seemed to be like the toolbox to enact those things so I chose economics with a sense of real sort of clear purpose really. And then your time at York, did you enjoy that? I enjoyed the process of learning, there's multiple reasons but I was always a very hard worker so you know when people boast that they drank their way through university or that they partied. I definitely enjoyed myself vigorously, but I worked very, very hard. And that's deeply uncalled to say. People are never meant to confess moments of endeavour. But yeah, I worked really hard. And then you went or you wanted to go into the music industry. I, I think I just ambition? wanted to do a job related to something passionate. I was passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And my, sort of, my lifelong passion is pop music. Uh, and cheap, nasty pop music. You'd probably sort of, a lot of people would style it as. But my lifelong passion is pop music, and so I was interested in going in something. You know, the issue with the whole of British education is that we ask people to choose subjects at 14 and 16 that are then going to determine the outcome of their life, but we've not provided them with any vocational direction, with any sense of where they're going to end up which suits people who come from families of doctors or families of lawyers or families of people in the establishment. It doesn't suit people who come from council estate, whose mum works at the Cadbury factory and dad, dad does sort of a, a succession of jobs before he gets unwell. And so I had no direction. So when I left university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. 
and trying to do something that I thought looked quite good fun seemed like a good first step. And then there's a legendary story about uh, how you got your first job. Yeah, well, the, my first job, so um, being at university in York, I, the, the milk round is, it, for people who don't know, it's just like this, these big firms that come round and, and you sort of, you're invited to put your applications in. I had this vague notion that maybe I'll become a lawyer. I think if you've got a vague notion, then you're never going to be hired. You need to be really clear on, uh, on why you're going to become a lawyer. So that didn't work. Then I started applying for other jobs in the middle of a recession. I started applying for other jobs. I was getting nowhere. I wasn't even getting replies. And so I drew a four-page cartoon CV of my life. And it's very much um, three out of ten. Four out of ten, if I was being generous. It's got a charm to it. Um, and I sent that off for jobs. And I think because, like, basically I would change craftily. I would change the first square. You've got to imagine something closer to the Beano's or Dennis the Menace rather than Marvel superhero. You've got to imagine that. Uh, and I would change the first square each time so it looked like the job ad that I was applying for. Oh, a little bit of extra effort. think nothing of it. And, uh, but so it looked each time like I'd done all these four pages for that job. And I used to get incredible responses. I used to get... The, the best was, because I first sent like this round robin to the whole of the music industry, sort of uh, 50 companies. The, the dated way I chose which companies I was going to apply for was the ones that had a telex machine. There's a bit of uh, technology history for people who have never even heard those words. But, um, and I sent it, and I would get phone calls from people. One, once I was sitting just watching Neighbours at home at my mum's house and uh, the phone rang at half past five and someone had just returned from a long, enjoyable lunch by the sound of things and he was sort of on the phone, this is the best CV I've ever seen, man. Let me, you know, we haven't got any jobs, but let me give you a reference. I have no idea what he would be giving me a reference for. But, um, yeah, so the CV did quite well and I ended up getting a job at Capital Radio through the CV. Which is fantastic. I know, I was delighted. And I always say, I often go and talk in, in schools. Um, uh, there's a Robert Peston programme called Speakers for Schools, for going into state schools, trying to do talks. And I always say to the kids, don't underestimate, if you get someone's attention and you make them buy into you, don't underestimate the power of that human connection. You know, I go, I did some in mining villages in Doncaster. I went to school in Side in Manchester. Went to a really depressed school in Coventry. And these are kids, me, you know, like, like anyone. who've got no family resource to draw upon. But if they can just capture someone's attention, I think there's opportunities for them. But it's hard. No one gives them that, that opportunity, I think. And so you made that opportunity for yourself. You came up with this really clever idea of sending a cartoon. Uh, got your first job. What what did you do? What was your first job? Yeah, I worked in sales at Capital Radio. So um, I was at that stage, you know, had a little bit of student debt, but not as much as uh, kids do now. And I was consumed with getting a job. I applied for jobs in Birmingham, applied for jobs in London. You know, naively, I didn't really know what the job involved. But uh, they said to me. They said to me, they hired three people at the time they hired me, and that was, that was my blessing, because they said the other two people had experience and qualifications and, and a track record, but because my CV had gone round the office, they thought they'd take a chance on me. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, the, the tapes of that interview, there certainly wasn't any charisma being exuded. It, and that, that job, sales at Capital Radio, did that feel like you were in the music industry? Um, not necessarily. No, no, it didn't. No, it just 
felt like, no, no, not at all. I mean, I was, was, was that a disappointment for you? Because you had these great ideas of working in the pop business, and there you are, flogging radio ads. Oh, no, I saw it as a stepping stone to it. Moved me to London. I spent, like, the next three years... Um, trying to apply for jobs in Radio 1, in record companies. So I was still trying to do stuff, but I adored my time working there at Capital Radio. I've still got lifelong friends from there. But, you know, um, I would do, I did some very elaborate, I did an application for Radio 1 where um, I did it over three days, very much inspired by the previous idea, get someone's attention. So I did, after like I've been in London for 18 months, I sent one day, if you remember white label records, you remember sort of vinyl records. One day I sent a vinyl record. Next day I sent a sort of a rave flyer. And then the third day I sent a CD uh, with my CV in it. And the weird thing is, like the first two days, this was to Andy Parfit, who was the controller of Radio 1. And the first two days, obviously it got through to him. Because on the third day, just as I was handing over the good bit, the money shot, as I was handing like the, the good bit over, the... Um, the receptionist said, when I handed it over, she said, can you wait there? There's a, uh, we want to put you through to someone. And I spoke to his PA, who said, he loves these things. Let's arrange a time for you to come in and see him. But that was before we even saw the, the uh, CD part. And um, the, the sad thing about that is I arranged a time in to go and see him the following Friday. And then he was off sick. And then they moved it three months back. And then when I turned up three months later, he had no idea who I was. Oh. So... One of those things. So what happened then? Uh, I sent him a card about um, six weeks later saying, look, still trying, you know, photography, really nice, sort of a Laurel and Hardy photo of me trying to, of, of Stan Laurel trying to climb over a wall with Hardy. I was like, I'm tr- still trying to get in, um, but nothing came of it. And so that's what I often say to the kids. So for example, when I did my cartoon CV, I actually got offered a job by Virgin Records. And they said to me, Basement job, like Postboy, Virgin Records. And they said to me, uh, great, here's the job. Karen Harris gave it, a woman called Karen Harris gave it to me. And she said, here's the job. Uh, you're the Postboy. Your job is to drive, they're in sort of West London. Your job is to drive down to the post office every day, collect the mail, CDs and vinyl at the time, and uh, drive back. And I said, okay, fantastic, thank you so much. I don't have a driving licence, but I'm going to take a crash test and I'll and I'll I'll get my driving license in two weeks. And if I don't do it, if I don't pass my driving test, I'd I'd been booked in for one of these before and it had been cancelled. I said, if I don't pass my driving test, I'll give you the job back. If I do pass my driving test, I'll start in two and a half weeks. Right, fail my driving test, and uh, I didn't observe on a corner properly. It was my own fault. I, you know, it's like I can't blame anyone else. But I always say when I go into these kids at school, like if you think, like even if you get someone's attention, that some good will come of it. No, chances are that will just buy you like a lottery ticket to the next stage. Yeah. And so you just got to persist with those things. Really. And, and what will be coming through already to list that just on you getting your first job and how you did it and your determination to move on from that first job to the next job is your energy, your determination and your positivity. So to what extent do you think they're important to have the kind of career success that you've had? At any stage, none of them felt like positivity. They just felt constructive. So I think, right, that's a probably important clarification. At no stage did I think, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It was more, right, here's why I, where I am. What's the most constructive thing I can do next? At no stage did I believe I am going to get a job in a record company. I never believed it. But I thought, okay, 
I've got to try my best. And what are the actions I can take to do that? You know, there were moments when I was like, I'd been unemployed after leaving university for, I'd done bar work, I'd done hotel work, but I'd been out of proper work for 10 months. There was definitely no positivity in the sense that there was no optimism that pervaded every moment. It was just like, right, what do I do next? What do I do next? Who can I write to next? And so take us through the next steps in your career. So uh, you didn't get to Radio 1 on that attempt. Yeah. So what came after In fact, I got into, uh, Andy Parfit got in touch with me, the guy I'd written to at Radio 1. He got in touch with me about um, six months ago because they did a podcast about the culture at Radio 1, uh, which was really interesting chatting to someone else there. And he sent me a note saying, I loved that podcast about Radio 1. I said, you won't believe this, but I actually came a long way towards trying to work there. And I explained the situation. Um, so I worked at... Uh, but he kicked himself. <laughs> I worked at Capital Radio for about four years. Then I went to work at a different radio group. Really big, successful British company called EMAP at the time. So FT100. At the time, FHM magazine was one of theirs, selling a million copies a month. Unbelievable. And still in sales? Uh, in, in sales, but sort of slightly broader commercial role. Um, then Capital... Uh, then they had magazines. I was working in the radio part initially, then went to work in their sort of web businesses, across everything, trying to make those web businesses work, then moved back to radio, then back to their web stuff. So I was there in total for about a decade. And then you went to Google. That's right. So, yeah. and, and tell us about that step to Google. Did yeah. Google approach you? Did you yeah, approach so, Google? Yeah, um, so I'd, I'd been made redundant from the publishing firm EMAP. And so I spent sort of three or four months looking for stuff. I almost went to work at MySpace to run the, uh, the office for MySpace. It's a good reminder of sort of how vanity can be intoxicating because, I, you know, you start thinking... I remember telling my friend who worked, at my, uh, who worked somewhere else that I was going to go and work at MySpace. And he, uh, he said he, he used colloquial language to suggest that they might be in trouble. And, uh, and I thought... But the, the vanity that comes from these things, you think, no, I can help, I can help sort that, of course. It's like, you know, it's, try, it's like one cabin boy trying to save the Titanic. So you're never going to have that. Um, but I went to work at Google and largely, you know, I'd gone from running a team of 100 people at the publishing firm to I was running a team of three people. But I just put my hand up very early on saying that they'd just bought, Google had just bought YouTube. I put my hand up very early on saying I'd love to get involved in running the setup of YouTube in the UK. And the strange thing is, Google is sort of filled with management consultants. It's sort of, I think the philosophy is they're meritocratic, and and there's a lot of discussion about meritocracy at the moment, for good and for ill. But actually, it's quite an elite organisation. It used to hire from just the top 30 universities in the world. Uh, It used to hire people with very high academics, and what you do in, in that selection process is you just ensure that broadly you've got people of a certain sort and they, they're often people who've chosen to either go into management consultancy and then leave or to heavily Oxbridge-based, um, very upper-middle class, sort of certain sort of people. And none of them wanted to work on YouTube because it had zero revenue, zero success. It had nothing. So me putting my hand up to work on that they saw it as sort of the dog with fleas in the corner of the office. And so I started working on that, and we only team really working on, on YouTube in the UK. There's about six of us, then about ten of us. Then I had about 
20 people, then I had about 40 people. So it sort of it snowballed in its success, really. And was the culture that you created when you were at YouTube the same as the Google culture? It became quite famous for being very different. So tell us how it was different. Um, these, these weird anomalies where the, the way that a business like Google works is it's, it's such a scale business. I mean, like it's 160,000 people now. I think it was about 80,000 people at the time. Um, but everything is about numbers. And so to some extent, you're a cell in a spreadsheet. You know, your job is to do specifically a certain job. And um, so one of the things you do is you're given 40 people. And so the way that anyone else there would think is if I'm given 40 people and there's no differentiation between me hiring school leaver or a veteran of business for the last 20 years, well, if they're treated as the same, I'm getting more firepower by getting these veterans. And I hired loads of kids. So I hired, like, kids. Some kids who'd... I I think at the time you had to have gone to university to work at Google, so there wasn't opportunities to use to get school leavers. But I just hired loads of people straight out of university, um, which created sort of a, a different almost kinetic energy to the way that the team felt. Um, and it was very... And what you f- often find, and you know, it's understandable, I guess, but if senior people, have, people who've been MDs of businesses were joining Google, and then they didn't want to get involved in doing stuff. They wanted to get involved in supervising stuff. So my team that would just do stuff, they were, we were like these sort of worker ants. We were just getting things done. So people just like would would see this sort of visible industrious energy that was emanating from us. Um, so it, was, it looked almost counterculturally in the spirit of it. And and what would be your favourite abiding memory of that time at Google? Yeah, I mean we just hired people who were my favourite thing about work. And I'm, and I suspect this is a bad thing, but. I love being surrounded by laughter, and, and not sycophantic laughter. Probably that's an important quality. I love it when other people in the team are making jokes, and, and, and I love being part of that laughter, not people laughing at me. I think it's important to qualify. Um, and so, you know, that, that was it. We just laughed every day. And it was, I, I still believe that YouTube, you know, and, and, and every digital product has got things that you could put in the against column. But... Um, YouTube is just like this incredible invention of human ingenuity. It's sort of an archive of all this incredible stuff. Now there's so much original content. If you want to learn guitar, you and me could sit there with YouTube, and in a week we could learn guitar. I'm blown away by that. So, so to work on that and to, to go and... We used to go and chat to broadcasters, we'd go and chat to advertisers, we'd go and chat to anyone that would listen, really. Um, it was just a, a wonderful thing to work on. And then the, the challenging bits of it? Um, it, it, right at the outset, it was right at the outset of a realisation that digital products are not all for the good. So any digital product, probably, I think the, the lesson of the last decade is that we've embraced digital innovation with optimism and we've had dawning reality check when maybe the, the way that things are used. And at the time... You know, YouTube comments used to be probably the low point of the internet. Anytime something was up there, the use of the word gay was always like a, a vile pejorative that was, that was just thrown at anyone all the time. And so those things, it felt like it did feel a little bit like YouTube was the underbelly of the internet. And of course, like those things have spread everywhere now. 
metastasize across the internet. But, um, but at the time, it did feel, you know, it wasn't without its challenges. Tell us how you then took on the role of, at Twitter in 2013. The strange thing about working at an organisation like Google is that you, there's as many things you're not allowed to do as, as allowed to do. And so um, a lot of people had job descriptions that were starting to overlap with mine. And you find yourself in a quite political sphere where you turn up to meet ITV and three people say, actually, if you're going, uh, someone else needs to come, and, this, and it's exhausting. It's actually mentally exhausting because you start thinking, I'm offending people by just sort of going out of the building. And so I started to do more keynote presentations at conferences. I thought, I'm just going to evangelise. I love this website. I'm going to evangelise it. And Twitter saw one of them and got in touch with me. And, uh, and the chief executive of Twitter at the time was a guy called Dick Costello. It still remains like a formidable guy. Um, Ex-improv comedian, incredible intellect, sold a business to Google for $100 million and now was running Twitter. And they said, will you come over and, and meet him in San Francisco? And I thought, I'll meet the CEO of any tech product. There's probably one or two exceptions there. But um, I'll, yeah, absolutely. And then I flew over and met everyone there. And I was just so enchanted. I love the product Twitter. I, I genuinely loved it then and I love it now. And I was so enchanted with meeting these humans who were sort of doing complex stuff that they asked me to come. I've been there for about eight years ever since. And so tell us about Twitter. What's great about Twitter? What would you change if you could change about Twitter? I see my job as I'm responsible for Twitter across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And um, that largely means that we've got very capable people in a lot of the countries around there. But these aspects where aspects of their day-to-day job where they need backup. They need to sort of call their big brother in. They need you know, a bit of weight at the table. And so my job is to give bursts of energy in, in those places and offer support. And so it's hard to see, but I see my job is I've done a good job if I've been a troublemaker internally. So, you know, if some of my colleagues are maybe running up against internal rules or internal limitations or, or scarcity, my job is to fight their corner and to do well. So, you know, I partly failed my last appraisal, for example, because, you know, sometimes I take the, the fight and I'm quite strident. So I see that as my job. And, you know, what would I change? I woke up to, to 40 notifications today because someone has seen, and that's every day, and it can be overwhelming at times, I, because someone had seen something that they considered to be a threat to someone. It was an American soccer player. Um, and so they'd choose, chosen to at me into it. And I don't think anyone had reported the original tweet but so immediately you wake up to a lot of probably rightful anger and, and, a, and sort of righteous in, indignation. Um, so, so that, you know, those things, you're never going to solve the problems of the internet. Because the, the problems of the internet are uh, dickheads. And unfortunately, dickheads are a global phenomenon that don't seem to be going away anytime soon. Is that a technical term? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the t- it's the term over the last six months I've started using increasingly because I've tried to understand their, their start point, how they've come about, these people seeking to post other people's personal addresses or to do things. And, and there's only 
there's no charitable inter- interpretation of it. So look, you know, so so that's a reality of the job. Quite often, these things can sort of veer into tricky areas. So is social media a power for good? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say unequivocally. But um, every every serving instruction, every sort of cautionary note about human beings applies to social media. So, you know, if someone said, are humans a force for good? You'd probably go, yeah, but I just want to let you know that these, these aspects. And is social media more democratic than most democratic structures? What social media can be incredibly powerful for is giving a voice to the voiceless and allowing people to, to rise through... Um, Merit- I, I'm really cautious of the word meritocracy, but rise through for the, for the right reasons. So I guess traditional media, for good reason, tries not to amplify noise. You know, if you've just got loads of a million different people shouting things, their job is not to amplify the million people. However, social media enables those people to group together. So, you know, I'm truly and, and wholly and, and unequivocally inspired by Greta Thunberg. And I genuinely don't think that she would have, at the age of 16, achieved a global platform as she has without social media. And so I, I love oh, this woman, Emma Gonzalez, who was a victim of the Parklands shooting in, in Florida last year. And she's created a platform for herself. On the pla- in fact, I saw those two talking to each other on Twitter yesterday. So, you know, I'm really inspired when I see things like that because the voiceless often has suffered at the expense of not being able to bring money to the table. And how do you view the, um, the, the phenomena of fake news, or there's lots of fake news out there? How, how do you respond to that? I think it's important to cl- clarify what you mean by fake news. The danger of fake news is that it's, it's become now this sort of broad pejorative that anyone can throw at anything. And we'll have you know, people in elevated positions like presidents, prime ministers, leaders... Saying something is fake news when it's demonstrably true. And so people have taken issue with opinion. Well, you know, we're all entitled to disagree with opinions, but that doesn't necessarily clarify as fake news. The, I think, you know, those issues represent bigger challenges for platforms than ever before. The critical thing about a platform like Twitter is typically it's been platform for truth. If you come out and you say that this event was well attended and it wasn't well attended, then people can hold you accountable for that. They can, they can demonstrate the sort of lack of veracity about what you're saying. Or if you say, I did this, you know, people might... One of the, the most interesting things to do is to watch the fact-checking that takes place at Prime Minister's Question Time. The, the things that in the old days we might have got away with as prognostications from, from a platform now have checked and, and verified. So social media can be very good at those things. I think the one thing we're keen to ensure is that over time certain voices have got really good at amplifying their side of the equation. One thing we looked at is we looked at the people who were retweeting certain bits of content and by small communities retweeting various different things. They were adding volume to things that actually were really low volume. It's the equivalent of a guy at the football ground shouting abuse, but then the 20 people around them, you know, 
turn the speaker up and they, they amplify that abuse. And then what you've got is 20 people in a ground of 80,000 people, but it seems way more significant. It's sort of deliberately manipulating what's going on, to, to, if that metaphor works. And so what you've still got, at essence, is 20 people in a big crowd. But anyone who, spectating might go, wow, did you hear that volume of noise? And I think that metaphor applies to what we've seen. We've seen platforms like Twitter and, and other platforms have maybe been manipulated a bit, and we've got far wiser to that. So we suspend... Uh, more accounts than ever before. We suspend a lot of accounts before anyone's even reported them. We, we've used uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to a far more sophisticated degree than, than we did two years ago. It's a bit like painting the fourth bridge. You know, you're never done with this. It's always like the moment you've done the last brush stroke, you start the first mm -hmm. one. You're never done with this. And the job becomes incrementally, log almost logarithmically, more complex every year. But I, I guess it's the, sort of the challenge of the job, really. There will be so many people listening to this who've got a Twitter account and have got 238 followers. And they'll be saying, what three tips, Bruce, have you got to get me five million followers? Um, I mean, the, the first thing I would question is what the benefit is of having those five million followers. You know, we often seek things where we're convinced that look, th these things are illusory. It's like all aspects of happiness. You know, possessing anything, whether it's a follower account or whether it's a new iPhone, often doesn't produce the happiness that you, we believe it's going to. So uh, I, I would question why, but if they've got a platform that they really want to, to amplify, then the, the critical thing is creating content that works on that. I mean, I, I follow about 4,500 people, and broadly my timeline consists of Tennis, American politics, pop music. Uh, what about UK politics? A little bit, but less, and ecology. And so broadly my timeline is those and sort of um, a little bit of scientific research and worker culture, actually. So my timeline is this like, weird confection of those things. Um, and so I just follow people who they either get retweeted into my timeline from the other people I'm following and I think, wow, what a fascinating person. So I, it comes from that. So a lot of, most people get value from Twitter, not by tweeting, but by following stuff. And it's, you know, it's a personalised news feed that if you're obsessed with American politics, you will get the best, most up-to-date sources of American politics news if you follow it on Twitter. Okay. And um, talk to me just a little about the culture that you've created at Twitter. And then we'll do the workplace happiness survey and see how you score. Okay. So what the things I created like this manifesto about a year and a half ago that I sort of tried obliquely to sort of present to people. And but the things in there are that we should be aiming to work no more than forty hours a week. I think the importance of good performance is a combination of work and rest. So we've got this situation where burnout levels in the British workforce are at record levels. And so trying to find a way to enable people to do their creative work seems to be pushing back against that. A lot of startup style Silicon Valley firms can be guilty of trying to encourage overworking and sort of, you know, burning the midnight oil. Um, so I try and avoid I, I try and sort of stand the ground for the evidence against things like that. I love laughter. Laughter is like the, the defining part of human existence for me.
So what we're going to do now, Bruce, is uh, your workplace happiness okay. score, uh, and we're going to do it in English. Okay. So if you'd like to read out the question, and then your score, and I might ask you some questions about what you score. Okay. So the first question is? Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your job? So let's talk about pay. Um, have you always felt you've been appropriately paid for the work that you did? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, um, the... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't earn sort of mega book salaries. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I, routinely when I'm offered jobs elsewhere, they're paid more than the job I'm on. Um, but I've always felt grateful for the job I've done and, you know, adequately rewarded for it. And you scored yourself out of ten? Ten. ten. Okay. I'm a like I'm a ten or zero guy. <laughs> Are you happy with your working hours? Um, this is something I've talked a lot about because you know I very strongly espouse the sense that people shouldn't work more than forty hours a week, but they should work them in appropriate ways. People often say to me, "But do you stick to that?" And you know I do. I, I really do. So. Um, it, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for example, there's a lot of machismo. I don't do a lot of breakfast meetings, for example, because, you know, if you've got any responsibilities at home, getting somewhere for like seven thirty, eight o'clock causes so much stress. And, it, and, and I'm not convinced. For me, it just causes excessive stress. I like. So, so I, I've now, reached the your, stage. What about your team, how you manage your team, Bruce? If you find that somebody in the office is doing... You know, one of the worst things I ever had was I came in, there was a day, I think we were working up to a, a, an award entry or something, and someone said, this person in that team hasn't been home. And I went round and there was a, uh, a designer who'd, who'd pulled an all-nighter, largely because I think his boss had created this fearful environment and it, I, I saw it like it was a systematic failure. Something top to bottom had failed. If he felt he needed to stay, his boss felt that he needed to put him under pressure to stay, and I was that guy's boss. It's like, that's, that's my failure, and I was so upset by it. Um, yeah, and you all know this. Quite often if people are sort of staying till 10 or you know, late into the evening, it's performative as much as anything else. There's really clear evidence. I, I, I tell you one thing that I came to a realisation. Mondays is a day of hell for me. I have back-to-back meetings, largely because it's the day where I connect with people across Europe and across the Middle East and, and back-to-back meetings. And it's very easy to go home on Monday with a 300 emails in your inbox. And so you consequently get into the habit where you're like, OK, what I'll do is I'll get a glass of, of white wine and I'll sit there and I'll do emails. And I found myself, you know, getting to 10 o'clock in the evening and thinking, I've read that last email seven times. I'm not actually doing work. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm building fatigue into my, you know, I'm playing with the music I'm listening to, reading that one again. It's too complicated. I'll come back to that one. And what you're doing is you're creating fatigue for yourself. And if you're more honest about, right, I'm going to get a good night's sleep tonight, get up tomorrow, power through emails, you actually... You're removing some of the sort of the misdirection and and, um, and falsehood from work. So, um, and do you think that by you setting that example at Twitter, forty hours, that cascades through the organisation? It definitely forces a dialogue on it. I've definitely heard colleagues having a discussion on it. Very good. So, what are you going to? I'm going to say 
I'm, I'm going to like, I'm a glass half full guy, three quarters full guy. I'm going to say nine on that. You're ten or zero. I know, because I just think it's too extreme to say yeah. ten, especially as I went to bed early last night. Do you feel recognised when you do something well? Um, I'm going to put a six there because my job is almost not to get recognition. You know, my job is to ensure that the people around me get recognition. I get adequate recognition, but I'm not. A job well done is if the people I work with who've maybe either done unrewarding jobs or done good jobs, they get noticed. So, you know, I mentioned a failed my appraisal last last time around. You know, like, my job is not for my ego. And to who does right. your appraisal, Bruce? My boss in New York. Okay. And do you ever get a call from uh, your boss in New York saying, well done? Uh, there's plenty of praise. There's plenty of praise. Good. Okay. So you're a six on that. Do you have enough information to do your job well? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge of the job we do. To, to never feel like you've got all the evidence. If I sat down with you, if you started grilling me now on... If you started a political interrogation of me, what are you doing on this, what are you doing on this, here's this account on this, it's, it's impossible not... It's impossible to answer those questions as a human and feel fully armed for them. So you can answer them robotically. You can answer... You can go to talking points and you can go... You know, and I've seen people from other tech firms do this, where they go to eight talking points, and it feels really rehearsed. It's, it's almost exhausting to listen to. The flip side is you want to be fully armed with all the information. And, um, and so at times I feel we just don't have those data points to hand. But broadly I've got enough to do my job as well as I can be. I'm, I'm going to say eight here. Now I'm, I'm gradually moving away from my ten, aren't I? Uh, do you feel information is openly shared with you at work? Yeah, very much so. Our chief exec, our founder, is... Um, incredible at that. He sort of, uh, I'm going to put 10 there, he models openness, you know, to illustrate the way that that would come about. You know, we've had in the last 12 months, merely talking about them is probably unproductive, but we've had a couple of data breaches or a couple of things and we, you know, the company mobilises to how quickly can we tell people on these things. And in fact, when we did one of them, the tech press, it was an infosec thing, so it was passwords were stored very briefly in an unhashed way, complex way to say uh, some passwords were, were stored in a way that you could have hacked into them. They weren't hacked into, but we released that within 48 hours of discovering it, which to mobilise the company to do that, and when the press saw that, the press initially said, you know, this is disgraceful, and then, you know, this sort of second breath of commentary was, we cannot criticise Twitter for doing this, because this sets a model that other companies should be emulating. If we criticise them for doing this, then no one will ever take this stand. But that's modelled very much by our founder, um, and so, you know, we're, we're very open as much as we possibly can. Okay, so uh, you have enough information I put 10 for that one. 10, yeah. Okay. Do you feel empowered to make decisions? Um, yes. I think in a big corporate structure, you know, quite often decisions are collaborative rather than personal. You know, if I've got a feeling about what we should be doing in Saudi Arabia, that's never my final decision to make. You know, you end up becoming 
a sort of a fo- part of a, a focus group, a, a pressure group, trying to force something through. So I'm going to put I'm going to put six on that because it's more than halfway. Do you feel trusted to make decisions? Yes, I do. But I'm going to put eight there. So why why eight? Um, just because you know, there's never total devolved autonomy. You know, I if I said I'll give you an example. There's quite often things that I see on the Twitter platform that I don't agree with. And the company needs to, it can't just be what you don't like, it's got to be what is consistent internationally. And so that's one of the challenges. You might, I might see something that I consider, and it's not uncommon for me to send someone to send something to me that I consider wholly indefensible. But number one, an important aspect of free speech is that people's right to say something you disagree with. Actually, their right to say something you find actually disgusting. Um, that's, that's an important quality. And so, you know, that while I might make a decision on that, actually, it's, I'm never going to be the final person on this. There's got to be a degree of let's do what's consistent internationally. Because if I get rid of something, if I said, they, this person has done something disgusting, take it down. <coughs> what about is and kicks in. And then someone will say, oh, what about when that happened here? What about when this famous actor said that here? What about, and immediately you've just, you've systematised this inconsistency and you just can't run a business like that. And do you feel more empowered about the stuff that you do on the side for you, say your podcast or your book? Does oh that, yeah, I make decisions instantly. Yeah. yeah. And, and so how does that feel? Do you feel, does that feel better to you than some of the compromises you have to make about decision making but I've, in a corporate Yeah, way? but I'm not remotely re- reflective and I have no rear view mirror. So I, you know, even when I failed my driving test for that job at Virgin Records, that I could have been the post boy at Virgin Records, and I could have given them the razzle dazzle, and they could have said, "Wow, what a charismatic post boy we've got!" And I could have been a, on a rocket ship to the top of Virgin Records, and it wouldn't have gone bankrupt, and blah blah blah. Um, I never, I never once. In fact, the only time I ever think about that job at Virgin Records is when I'm talking about that CV, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I could have got that job." And I wonder what that. I, I never. I'm, even the day I didn't get it, when I was back to the dole, I wasn't on the dole, I was working in bars, but I was back to being an unemployed in Birmingham. I never, I never remotely sat there going, I wonder what would have happened. Never once, never once. So I'm not, not being reflective is probably an advantage. I fall asleep instantly. You know, I, I'm not consumed with any moment of doubt or anxiety, even when I've had zero money and no status. So next question. Do you have the resources you need to do your work, job well? I think, you know, an important part of all business is scarcity. The, the moment you feel like you're overflowing with resources, you don't make decisions, right? You know, if you're allowed a Chinese army to come along and do anything, you don't, you don't make scarce decisions. So I think I've got enough resources that enable me to have decisions of scarcity. So I'm going to say eight there because... I, you know, everyone who works for me would love loads more, um, but I think it forces choices. Are you happy with your working environment? Yes, I'm going to say nine. Do your offices are super trendy. Yeah, oh, is that what that means? And that uh, most definitely, uh, they're wonderful. They, they sort of uh, were fortunate. But I tell you this, I would have put the same score. We used to work in a tiny little serviced office that was no WeWork. Let me tell you, it was sort of mouse infestation. 
Uh, we had the floor was falling apart, uh, and we loved it there. So, I think to some extent, your office becomes yeah, your culture. It's as much morning. about the people and culture yeah. as it is about the fixtures and fittings. Do you believe your views are heard at work? Unequivocally, yes. Anyone in the company can email anyone. Do you feel the organisation cares for your well-being? Yes, it does. I'm going to put nine there. Do you rarely feel depressed, anxious at work? I don't feel depressed, so uh, so rarely means ten, right? Do you feel you do something worthwhile? Yes. Do you feel proud to work for your organisation? I really do. What did you score? Nine. Okay. How likely are you to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? Um, uh, I don't believe in nepotism, but in the spirit of that, it's not friends or family. It's, it's, it's people I like as much as my friends and family, yes, unequivocally, 10, I put that. Do you feel you are treated with respect? Yes, I do. Well, um, by people internally, I am. By people externally, I'm not. If you want to read my Twitter mentions, you'll see that. <laughs> should I treat this as... I should treat this as work-based, right, rather than the people who hate everything about the internet. If you Google uh, Twitter complaints, my email address comes up. And my email address largely comes up because I have a track record of replying to people. So, um, so be it Friday night or Saturday morning or you know, Saturday evening, people who are in a state of disempowered fury sort of angrily email, and I always reply and I always try and solve their issues. I think over time, my name has therefore ended up on message boards and places. And so, um, so I am the help desk of Twitter. Do you enjoy your job? Yes, I do. Do you feel you have a good relationship with your line manager? I'm going to say seven there. Let's just keep on. Um, do, you feel you're, do you feel you're being developed? I see my responsibility for development is being on me. That's my responsibility. So yes, I do. Do you feel happy at work? Yeah, I'll say nine. Yes. What three changes would improve your workplace happiness? Fewer video calls. Fewer video calls. I do spend half of my life on Mondays on video calls. Okay. Uh, what else would improve your workplace happiness? Um, the world being on one time zone. On one time zone. And the final one is less travel. Yeah. Do you find travel exhausting? Um, Do you have to go to San Francisco a lot? A little bit. You know, I've been sort of, yeah, a lot a lot in the last... A lot of just various travel, you of know, European, yeah, Africa yeah. as well. So what are your top tips for uh, people who've got to travel a lot? See, I, I think these people who do it who get into a good balance where they they use their travel time as leisure time. And unfortunately, I use my travel time to read academic papers and to read things about the science of work. So I would not describe myself as the best case scenario here. Okay. So you've finished all the questions now. Is that all of it done? And what you're going to do now is okay. the filter questions to match you against people like you. So gender's the first one. Then we've got your age range. And then we've got whether you're manageable or not manageable. Are you feeling nervous? No, no, not now. I thought you were going to tap into deep psychological holes. Okay. So. It's looking good. Out of a thousand, you have scored. 861. Global and mean is 655. The industry mean is 624. So you are significantly ahead of people uh, in your industry. 
And then the next thing we get is we break it down into the six steps. So there are six areas uh, that we measure, reward and recognition, uh, then information, whether you have information to your job, whether you feel empowered, uh, your well-being, instilling pride and job satisfaction. And of five of those, uh, you're in the green and you score above the average. There's one when you're amber, and that's around uh, empowerment, and that's where you talk about decision-making. And then what we have for individuals is, um, if you scroll down to the next one, uh, we have a number of matrix. So the first one we start with always is the well-being matrix. And what we do here is we show where you are compared to your industry and the global mean, which are overlapping. If you were to score poorly on this, and you obviously scored very high, uh, we'd recommend that you go and take the NHS well-being test. Yep. Um, and then obviously once you do that, it gives you advice on what you should do about your, your well-being. But uh, you score very highly on that. The next one we have is what we call the stickiness index. The stickiness index is your likelihood to leave your current job. And it's really based on the relationship you have with your line manager the and your pay. It's really the factors around you know, why you stay in jobs or leave jobs. The number one pe reason people leave jobs is the relationship with their line manager, mm -hmm. uh, coupled with a feeling that their pay isn't fair. But as you'll see there, you score highly. and You're above both your uh, industry uh, mean and um, people that look like you. And then next we get um, uh, an index that tries to find out whether you're an apostle for what you do or you're an anarchist. Okay. And um, you're very much an apostle about Twitter and the job that you do. You'll find that the industry and people like you are, are slightly more okay. to the centre. But what we find is that you get martyrs in this group, people who don't really like their job but stay there. You quite often find that's people like nurses and doctors yeah. who aren't that keen on the environment they work in but feel they're doing something really important. And then down at the bottom, you get, um, uh, in the bottom right corner, you get uh, individualists. These tend to be um, lawyers and financiers. Okay. They wouldn't recommend where they work, but they rather like the pay and the status, okay. so okay. they kind of stay on. So they're certainly not apostles to where they work, but they stay for all the, you could argue, the wrong reasons. Then we look at whether you feel you're being developed in your career, which of course you are. Then after that, we look at whether you feel as though you're included within your organization, you're off the chart in terms of whether you feel you're being included. Then we look at whether you feel you're empowered, and again, you sit above the average. All of these are, are, are pretty typical because of how you scored overall. Then we look at your sense of purpose, whether you think you're doing something worthwhile, and of course you score more highly than the average. And then this is a particularly important one, this is how you get on with your line manager. And again, you're above. If on any of these you feel that you need to um, improve, what we can do is we explain to people what needs to happen. Yeah. If you drag the box, it shows you how you are. So we try and, if you score lowly on this, we try and advise people on what they need to do. And then we've got the workplace environment. So again, you score highly there. And then if you wanted to, you have time and you do this test individually. We do a deep dive into every single question and how you compare and where your strengths and your weaknesses are. But I am delighted to say, Ruth Daisley, you have more than passed. With flying colours, you are more than, um, uh, what, almost 200 marks ahead of the average or uh, 20 percentage points ahead of the average. So you are very clearly very happy in what you do and enjoying your working life. I want to ask you two questions. To finish, I want to ask you two questions. The first is, and you, you are a well-known pop music geek. Which piece of music makes you feel happiest? I always say to this, and people, um, people rank like this, I always say, I got a feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. 
and I'm going to stick with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night. That tonight's going to be a good night. That tonight's going to be a good, good night. A feeling. <laughs> um, just, I, I think largely because it really annoys people when I say, tell them that that's my favourite pop song. And I genuinely love that pop song. When that song comes on, if you, get in the, if you get in the rhythm with that song, it's hard not to have a good night out. Good. And then my last question is, if you were to nominate one person to take the Workplace Happiness Survey, who would you nominate and why? That's interesting, because I'd probably want to pick someone where we've got something interesting, an interesting sort of insight and something... Uh, revealed from them. Do you think Boris Johnson enjoys his job? You know, this, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we can read so much into whether people are enjoying their jobs and so much, again, like I say, I'm a sort of distanced viewer of these things. I'm an obsessive tennis fan. You know, a lot of tennis players look like they're not really enjoying their jobs. But I suspect if you took it away from them, they'd feel heartbroken. And what about in your workplace? Who I would recommend to... Yeah. What, sort of, of the, the founding fathers or, or that group of internet entrepreneurs, the San Francisco... Yeah, the reason, why, the reason why I'm really inspired by some of the people I work with is that I've met a selection of people from Silicon Valley and, um, and the territory comes with immense amount of unpredictable pressure and that sort of pressure, I think, can be revealing of someone's true character and so I think it does reveal who you really are and so I'm fortunate to work with people who have been tested with that and I think have come out generally okay. okay. Well Bruce I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you, absolute pleasure to hear you talk so eloquently about uh, the joy of work and uh, uh, how you should balance time in work and enjoy out of work uh, and thank you for doing the uh, Workplace Happiness Survey and scoring so highly. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time. Mm -hmm.